With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. I had a very psychologically damaging relationship with the director of this film. Let's call him Phil. And Phil mentally abused me for a year and a half. He really broke me down to my core components to where I couldn't function anymore. He called me and he was like, hey, um, we need to start over. This is the, the, this this cut sucks. We're starting over. I lost my footing and I feigned food poisoning for two weeks. And it was because I was so depressed. I spiraled into a deep depression that led me to where I am now. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go for that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. <laughs> Welcome to episode five of our series on food, conflict, and unity. In this series, we're exploring the life stories of culinary pioneers, those who seek to transform cuisine, preserve culture, and unite the global community. The clip you just heard was YouTube's culinary icon, Andrew Ray, who, despite feeling like his life was collapsing, founded a channel that now holds over 9.2 million subscribers. But the successful channel has a backstory, one that you wouldn't see from the high-definition videos and the confident voice behind them. From navigating the grief of a close loss to coming face-to-face -face with mental illness, Andrew's endured some tough shit. But when reflecting back on his life, he's grateful for it all. To hear why he feels that way, well, I guess you're just gonna have to keep listening. But in the meantime, let's get a closer look at where it all began where things looked a whole lot different than they do today. I had no friends until ninth grade. And when I say I had no friends, I mean that very accurately. I, I didn't have a single friend and my mother died when I was 11. It was a shitty time in middle school. Can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, you can swear. <laughs> it was a shitty time. Do you remember anything about cooking with mom? Like I, there was something about a a Nestle Toll House cookies and soups and simple things. It was like a Nestle Toll House commercial. It might as well have been. We, we would cook in slow motion, laughing and dabbing little bits of cookie dough on each other's noses. It's, you know, it was, a, it was a Hallmark commercial. She taught me how to make cookies and she, she always insisted on us sitting down for dinner every night, you know, kind of old fashioned, especially nowadays. But uh, it, it, it helped kept, keep us together as a family unit. I imagine also that having that consistency in the family unit helped at a time where things are weird and no friends at school. You had like some stability there. There was definitely stability there. When she passed away, it was her third bout with cancer. I really had no idea she was dying because she had had cancer before. So in my little kid brain, I was like, oh, she's, she's beaten this twice before. She's fine. And unfortunately, 
I'm not surrounded by terribly emotionally communicative people in my family or in my personal life at that time. When they came downstairs to tell me that she had passed away, I was fucking blindsided. What were people saying to you? The most popular girl at school brought me a plate of cookies and said, we heard about your mom. We're so sorry. I know that, you know, she didn't know who I was. And she just heard about a sad thing that had happened to somebody in our class and, and did something sweet about it. But dear God, did that feel nice. What, what, a, what a kind thing. Lauren Domenko was her name. If, Lauren, if you hear this, thank you so much. I feel like that's almost poetic and that the thing that you and your mom were cooking together is like the thing that she brought you. Whoa, I didn't ever put that together. See, therapy rules, man. <laughs> Even if you're not a licensed therapist or whatever, you're a podcaster. Uh, it's great. Lauren's small act of compassion wound up having a far greater impact on Andrew than she probably realized. That simple gesture just acknowledged that Andrew's loss was real. That happened. I think it just shows how simple gestures can really have meaningful impact and rippling impact. It was the kind of acknowledgement that he didn't get from the adults around him. Maybe that was because they wanted to save him from pain, or maybe that's just because they couldn't accept the truth of the idea of death. But all it did was just postpone that truth. And I think, honestly, that's a common thing. We tend to avoid hard truths, conversations about death. And I get it, it's hard. But reflecting on death makes us more appreciative of life. By remembering our mortality, we actually don't feel as blindsided by it when it comes and maybe can see some beauty in it. But Andrew, only 11 years old at the time, was blindsided, and it would take years for him to process that grief. In the wake of that, how did your actions change? I did not approach it with humor. If anybody in a one-mile radius made a your mom joke, I made sure to be offended by it. And then I surely acted out. My, my grades plummeted. I needed to go to therapy in, you know, sixth and seventh grade, which is never fun. By the end of eighth grade, my, my grades were so bad and I still had no friends. My dad was understandably concerned. He pulled me out and put me into a private school called the Harley School, which absolutely changed my life. They permeate mindfulness and empathy into every aspect of the curriculum. It is remarkable. They have a hospice class. A hospice class? Yeah. It is a year-long class where the first semester, first half of the year, you study death and dying as a spiritual concept, as a chemical scientific concept. And then the second half of the class is going to hospice and caring for people who are dying. And the gentleman that I I took care of, his name was Robert. Uh, He was a Vietnam War vet who loved playing the harmonica, but he had lung cancer. kept telling me how he wanted to play the harmonica and I eventually brought him one and he tried to play it. He got a few notes out, but he couldn't really make a tune. He he couldn't summon the breath. He started to cry. This is a hardened old man and and it was very difficult to see him cry. And then um, I wasn't there when he died, but I came uh, about five minutes after he died. When I got there, the nurse who was working there told me that he had expired, which was particularly insulting. Why do you think people dance around saying it's death? She was probably trying to be delicate, and 
why my mom passing away traumatized me so much because everybody was being so delicate with me. I was, I was 10, I was 11. They didn't want to tell me your mom's dying. Your mom's going to be dead in six months. Nobody wanted to say that to my face. So it blindsided me when it happened. I want to talk about like two diverging paths because your dad was interested in, in doing photojournalism and then you got this interest in food from your mom. So did you feel those two interests competing with each other in terms I, of... I definitely felt those two duking it out and for some reason didn't realize until like last year their provenance. I didn't put two and two together that I got the filmmaking side from my dad and the cooking side from my mom and that those two divergent interests came together in this beautiful way that is me. What were the projects that you took on to try to understand those interests or, or, or were there? I started making movies to get out of writing essays. I've done that before. Yeah, no, it's the best. Back in eighth grade, my first time doing it, uh, it was about the first submarines, that the, the sort of pseudo-submarines pseudo that they used during the Civil War. And I was like, can I make a movie instead? And they were like, you want to make a movie about submarines? And I was like, yeah. And so I got a, a big blue tarp out and I made some little models out of cardboard and I strapped bottle rockets to them and I dragged them around on the tarp using a uh, fishing line. You know, I got a pass. I don't remember if it was a good grade, but I got a passing grade for it. They were like, yeah, you made a movie about it. I continued to do that through high school and I realized that I enjoyed it so much that I wanted to go to college for it. It started to definitely outweigh culinary, but I still thought I was hot shit with culinary. I was cooking for my friends and family and girlfriend and girlfriend's family and doing a terrible job all the time. I remember serving chicken breasts stuffed with uh, artichoke hearts and cream cheese and breadcrumbs. I thought I was really good at both. And I went to film school and realized, you know, like most college kids, oh, maybe I'm not the best at this. And maybe I do need a, a, to learn a lot. I mean, but you did have some like talent because you were you're, you were winning awards, right? My, my senior thesis at the uh, senior film festival that we have, you know, the film festival at the end of the year where everybody shows their stuff. I won Best Director, Best Editor, Best Cinematographer, Best Writing. What did that uh, film festival change or did it change anything or did it just accelerate your belief in yourself? I thought it was hot shit in high school and then I went to college and I was like, oh God, here's, you know, a hundred other kids that are all going for the same thing and that all have the same skill set as me. And then at the end of four years, I had succeeded in proving that I, I do know what I'm doing and I, and I do have something to share. I do. I have, I have a creative voice. Did you feel happy at that point? I was pretty happy. I can count a, a, a very few handful of times that I was happy leading up to uh, up, up before the show, because I was just generally suffering from depression and anxiety on top of being a little weirdo and not having many friends. And I was an imbalanced unhappy kid for the vast majority of my first two thirds of, of living. Some people that I've talked to in film and in art, especially think that the sadness is the fuel for artistry and that without it, without the being the tortured artist, where does the creativity and reason for producing come from? I think that's absolutely true. It doesn't have to be universally true. I'm sure that great art can come from somebody with no trauma, but the vast majority of great art, I think, comes from trauma. It's kind of like how 
I don't think you can really love somebody until you've had your heart broken. I think that that both galvanizes you and makes you realize that you need to love yourself and you need to be okay with yourself. You need to be okay with being alone for the rest of your life, potentially, before you can ever potentially be a good partner to somebody else. If you can only function because of the validation and affection of somebody else, then you're, you can't really be a good partner. So it's, I think that's the same kind of correlation that like you have to have that hurt to really be able to inhabit the space that you want to as, as an artist in most of the cases. I don't want to speak universally. As rough as Andrew's childhood had been, those experiences were the fuel, the ideas that allowed him to inhabit that space as an artist and a creator. And creativity was constant, even in the midst of plummeting grades and depression. And let's look at this enthusiasm for film, because from one perspective, it just looks like a kid trying to get out of writing essays. But it's also important to remember he had only just lost his mom a couple years before. Filmmaking may have served as a distraction or an outlet or both. Filmmaking gave Andrew the freedom to express the stuff that had been going on in his head and the freedom to escape, to create worlds that existed outside of his own. It allowed him to dissociate from the present for just a little bit and explore all these feelings through a safe medium. The real world can be a tough place after all, and graduation would present a new set of challenges. Coming out of college, you had all these accolades, you were doing really well. What was trying to delve into a career like? It was that sort of going to college awakening times a thousand because then I'm entering the workforce where there is, you know, if there was a hundred kids at Hofstra that all have the same drive and skill set that I do going out in the workforce, there was a thousand every square foot and, and 10,000 after that, that have way more skill sets and, and, and much larger ambitions and, and, and are much, you know, the industry was much more connection oriented. So what was that first job out of college like? When I came home, my dad wanted to teach me some self-reliance. So he was like, you have 30 days. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> the ultimatum. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, I, I appreciate that because it did get me off my ass. I was like, okay, I have to figure out what the fuck I'm going to do because I'm not going to have a roof over my head in 30 days. So I, I sold my car uh, to my brother who gave me my asking price for it. That was nice. Uh, I moved to the, to the city. First 10 months in the city were... New York City, for anybody who isn't doesn't know what I'm referring to, uh, were were absolute hell. They sucked. I I just applied to every job I could find, even if I was wildly unqualified. I would I would apply, and I eventually got a couple interviews, and then I got one with a little company called Switch FX. They hired me as an as a, an assistant smoke artist. So smoke was a high-end finishing software made by Autodesk. I got hired under the auspices of having been a smoke assistant for the past 10 months, and really, I hadn't been allowed to touch the software. The smoke artist that I worked with was so protective of his craft and of any new up-and-comers that he never let me touch the computer. I had to lie and say, like, uh, yeah, I know I'm proficient, I know what I'm doing. And the first two weeks there, I was just in a flop sweat, nonstop, trying to figure shit out. (laughs) 
how were you figuring it out? And like, did did they ever get wise? Like, you don't seem like you've used this before. I think they realized that they that they had hired somebody a little less experienced than they had um, anticipated, but work was a little slow, so they decided to cut me some slack and give me the chance to try and prove myself. I was working directly and independently on nationwide ad campaigns uh, for Swiffer, for bounty paper towels, for stuff like that. It was all, you know, touch-up effects. So if an actor was wearing a shirt with a Nike swoosh on it, I would get rid of it. Was it rewarding doing this? I mean, I don't always tell people. I said this for the first time last week, and I'm going to say it again now. This is grind in your 20s, delegate in your 30s. Uh, I had what I felt like, what felt like unlimited energy uh, to do these kinds of things because I would you know, all day, just try and figure out the software. And then I would take the manual home. Have you ever seen the physical written manual for like Photoshop? It's, it looks like war and peace. Yeah. I, I just had to grind. I just had to figure it out. And, um, luckily they paid me enough and I was able to quit all the part-time stuff and pursue an industry career full-time. And I stayed there for seven years. It's pretty obvious from the way Andrew talks about it that he didn't find blurring out copyrighted material creatively fulfilling. While there was some amount of artistry in his work, there was no room for artistic vision or self-expression. But developing a specialized skill set did offer a rare chance at stability in a highly competitive and volatile field. After countless hours of unpaid labor and applying to countless job postings, he was finally a full-time film industry professional. And now that he wasn't spending all his energy just trying to keep his head above water, Andrew could finally take the time to plan his next career move. I just tried to branch out in every way that I could. I worked with my dad. Uh, he was doing some nonprofit work for a, an organization called Opus. But uh, it was very, very new for me, and it was it was enlivening. It was very exciting. So I decided to try to start making um, uh, short films and uh, uh, fundraising videos, really, for NGOs because they typically had small budgets that they could throw together to at least fly me somewhere or rent me some equipment. And that's really all I wanted. I just wanted the opportunity to tell a story. When you're going over on this flight with your dad, you had this this inspiration to become uh, interested in film from your dad. And now you're actually working with that inspiration. Did it feel like you were close almost to the source in some way? It was very exciting. Uh, it was very fulfilling. Uh, and I learned a lot from him because he is a visual storyteller being a, f a photojournalist. So those two trips were very important experiences. They furthered my career. They brought me closer to my dad. They made me feel a sense of fulfillment that I hadn't before because the work that I was doing felt noble. It felt like, okay, I'm doing something that makes a difference. It's being called a catastrophe of major proportions. The Caribbean island nation of Haiti has been rocked by its biggest earthquake in more than 200 years. The 7.0 quake hit just south of the capital. In 2012, when was the earth the massive earthquake in Haiti? Somewhere around there, it was. It was. It was within a year after that earthquake, and so the, the, the country was still and continues to be in, in unfortunate disarray, especially recently. We um, went to a morgue uh, where, you know, it was probably ten months after the earthquake, and they hadn't been able to uh, dispose of or bury bodies, and they didn't have air conditioning. 
I can't really describe to you the smells and the things that I saw there. The 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 the, the absolute. Uh, it was it was uh, inhumane. It wasn't anybody's fault except for the people you know in the government that were preventing aid from reaching them. But um, in, it was inhumane for the people who had to work in that room. No air conditioning. Hundreds of bodies just stacked like cordwood and just rotting into one another. It was horrible. It was horrible. It was the, the, the single most horrible thing I've ever seen. The guy that we were profiling, every week he would go there and they would allow him to take ten bodies out to the countryside and bury them, give them proper burials. It was an incredible thing that he was doing. And they would go in there and the smell, like I was saying, was unbelievable. And they would smoke cigars. You know, these are Catholic priests and stuff and they were smoking cigars and pouring rum all over their faces and drinking rum and, 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 and singing at the top of their long lungs and drinking brandy to, to celebrate. They were doing it to cope with the smell. The cigars and the brandy would drown out. It's the only thing that could drown out the smell. And I was taken f- surrounded by these decaying bodies uh, and I was taking video of the bodies and of the humanity of it all trying to make it as visceral as possible and he tapped me on the shoulder and he said no, don't do that. Get a shot of Father Rick right there. Go in slow motion. Get a shot of him pouring rum all over his face and smoking a cigar. That's the moment. That was the moment. It was a brief snapshot of other humans. People not at all different from you or me but experiencing something more horrible than most of us will ever face in our life. And that's what's so powerful about moments like these. Like for a tiny sliver of your time, you feel a fraction of what they're feeling. If only for the sole reason to share a little bit of humanity in all this pain. To provide a bit of context to this, on January 12th, 2010, a magnitude 7.0 earthquake struck Haiti. It claimed the highest per capita fatality rate in modern history with over 300,000 deaths and more than 1.3 million people left homeless. When Andrew and his father arrived, the country was still reeling. Now the subject that had been taboo for his whole childhood, death, was all around him. For years, Andrew had struggled to process his own loss, and now he was documenting people going through a similar thing. These were their loved ones. This was their community, their country. And while this time Andrew wasn't living it, he could document it and begin to tell the stories that matter. He'd found the thing that was missing, and he wasn't about to let it go. But back at home, life was about to take an unexpected turn. And so how did that change how you viewed what you could do with a camera, what you could do with a story as you came back and maybe integrated back into New York? How how did you think about your duty as, as a storyteller? Well, I mean, it inspired me to uh, move into one of the least healthy relationships that I ever have had uh, because I wanted the opportunity to tell a big story. A a friend of a friend approached me with uh, a a job to work on a feature-length documentary about recidivism. Recidivism is the act of a person repeating an undesirable behavior after they had either experienced negative consequences of that behavior. The term is frequently used in conjunction with criminal behavior and substance abuse. 
I had a very psychologically damaging relationship with the director of this film. Let's call him Phil. Um, I've never done this before. I've never made up a name for somebody. His name's Phil. Uh, and Phil basically mentally abused me for a, a year and a half. I worked on this on this uh, documentary because I wanted to tell this big, important story uh, about recidivism. And Phil himself was formally in the system. And I don't blame him at all for his the difficulties in his life and the way that he now conducts himself because he had a hard upbringing. Like, I complain about my childhood. He was put in solitary when his mom was was too messed up on speed or crank or something. I don't know. And and uh, the, the cops didn't know what to do with him as an eight-year-old, so they threw him in solitary. Like, he, that, that, that breaks a person. He... he would some days come in and pat me on the back and tell me about what such, I'm doing such a great job. And then other days he would come in and just annihilate my spirit. There was one day that he came in and he just grabbed all the hard drives off my desk and screamed at me in front of my coworkers about trying to sabotage him. Because this was something that I worked on after hours. I'd work nine hours and then I would work until three in the morning with him almost every night for about a year. He really broke me. Uh, he really broke me down to my to my core components to where I couldn't function anymore uh, to the point where I was delusional and crazed from lack of sleep I was crying in the middle of the day for no reason and then uh, he called me and he was like hey um, we need to start over this is the, the, this this cut sucks we're starting over and I just completely lost I lost my footing and I, went, I spiraled into a deep depression that led me to where I am now. You uh, said earlier, like, you will put your time and effort into things that you really care about because you actually cared about the project and cared about making it good. So it seems like it would doubly hurt that that, that dedication just wasn't seen. He's not totally in the wrong. I was way over my head. I've never edited a feature documentary. I was, I was out of my depth. Same thing as when I got my job. I was like, I'm going to bite off way more than I can chew and see if I can swallow it. <laughs> and But I just couldn't do it. I had worked so hard for so long. I, I was completely tapped out. And it sent me into an absolute tailspin where I feigned food poisoning for two weeks because I couldn't get out of bed. And it was because I was so depressed. It makes sense that Andrew would claim to be physically sick. After all, no one ever tells you that food poisoning is all in your head. But Andrew had hit his breaking point, and the abuse served as a trigger for depression. When listening to him talk about the experience, it isn't too difficult to understand why it resulted in a depressive episode. But just how vulnerable a person is to depression can depend on other factors, such as the experiences they had as a child or the quality of their support group. When looking at Andrew's younger years, the loss he experienced, the loneliness, the absence of close friends, it seems like he would have been especially vulnerable to depression's grip. And there's something interesting I noticed in talking to him. I'm struck by his compassion when speaking about the person who caused so much pain. You can tell that some of his emotional wounds are still raw, but when discussing this person, he still tries to paint a fair and accurate picture. I have no doubt that it took time to get there. But for now, in the aftermath of his resignation, things weren't about to get any easier. What was your, your inner dialogue? You don't have what it takes. You don't have the skill set to make it in this industry in the way that you always dreamt. What was the dream? 
to be a famous director or to, to work on projects that I cared about. I loved my job. I loved working at Switch. But it seems like you were doing that. Was it the fame that wasn't there? No, 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 no. I was working on a project that I cared about and failed. So clearly I couldn't work on the things that excited me and that enlivened me. That was my thought process. I took on this project that I was so excited about and it annihilated me. I was also in a rotten marriage. I was in a, I was in a marriage that was falling apart. I was in a very dark place, just generally. There's something about people who don't have depression or have never felt depression where they have very hard time empathizing or understanding what I was going through, like the not being able to get out of bed. To somebody who's never been depressed before, that looks like laziness. That looks like, oh, you're 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 being slovenly because you feel you feel like a failure. But it's absolutely debilitating. It's completely debilitating when you're in the throes of a, of a depressive episode. Is there a moment where you felt like it was your lowest point or was that the moment? Yeah, that was probably the lowest moment of my life. And that was the moment that inspired me to try and make a change. And that's why I started going to therapy. I have this image in my mind of dark sea of like black gooey liquid and imagining you drowning in that and then like your whole body submerged in this gooey liquid like the thoughts swirling around and then all of a sudden there's just like blue hand reaching into the gooey like liquid and saying like oh here's an idea maybe this will pull you out that's exactly what it felt like found a very expensive therapist and uh he was kind enough to cut his rates in half for me because i, I was i was destitute I started healing. I, he put me on well, Wellbutrin. I don't remember what the moment was. I don't remember when it was, but uh, it happened. And it started the, the chain of events that led me to where I am now. So I'm very grateful to Phil uh, and to my ex-wife and to everybody with whom I've had negative experiences through no fault of their own for helping me realize how to f become my best self. Becoming his best self was a slow and painful process. The combination of his workplace abuse, a crushing sense of failure, and his unraveling marriage created a space void of any emotional stability. Depression had consumed him. And I'm sure that for a long while, he felt like there was no getting out. Again, it was as though he was submerged in a black gooey liquid, and it would take an immeasurable amount of strength and will to try to pull himself out. But I do want to clarify that all this stuff isn't a mindset thing. Depression is serious and debilitating. Many people struggling with it don't have it in them to pursue help at all. And going through therapy consistently, digging up a lifetime's worth of painful stuff is often emotionally and psychologically exhausting. How was Andrew supposed to drag himself out of this dark place when he couldn't even muster up enough energy to shower regularly? But as the antidepressants kicked in, so would the positive life changes. But the change isn't also just a mindset one, right? Like it's not just like pop a pill and, you know, change like, oh, you just need to be looking up instead of down. Like I feel there's a lot of things in your environment right now that you have to change as well. It's, it's not as simple. Like there needs to be action taken towards changing it. So how did you start changing your environment? Because there are some things that are not working, right? 
Yeah, I definitely didn't take a pill and everything was better. I mean, if that were the case, I'd still be married and I'd still be... If anything, the pill provides a lovely placebo effect because it's like in the first season of The Sopranos where Tony's like, oh, those pills, they worked. They, they, I'm doing much better. And she's like, you know, it takes two weeks for those to metabolize in your system. There's no way you're feeling the effects of that right now. So just knowing that you're taking a step to help yourself, that alone has a placebo effect that can energize you to at least be a little bit better. It's it's all chain reaction. He gave me pills that made me feel better in the immediate because of the placebo effect. And then they made me feel better subconsciously as I was drafting off of that, that energy that they gave me. And Wellbutrin has a stimulant effect as well. So it did give me energy, which was nice. It was like drinking 64 ounces of coffee when I took those the first time. Um, that just sort of led me to question, you know, OK, what do I want and how do I get it? And his suggestion was that I find the creative outlet. But he, he was like, you know, you, you went to school to make things and you're not making things anymore. And you've just been dealt a blow by this by this documentary project that has convinced you that you can't make things and you need to know that you can. You need to discover, rediscover that you can. So I thought, OK, I can make some extra money if I do more projects for NGOs, uh, you know, fundraising videos. And I worked with some NGOs for a little bit. And then I was just messing around in the kitchen one day. And I was like, you know, I love food. <laughs> I wonder if I could do some cool food photography. And I just, I just made a smoothie. It's just an experiment that I did where I was like, if I were to make a cooking show, what would it look like? Not even a YouTube cooking, just a cooking show. If I were to make something about food, what would it look like? I'm just going to play. You had space to actually just explore something without having pressure on it necessarily, which I think can dampen a little bit of your direction and like where what you actually get joy from. That's the thing that we all grapple with from time to time is finding the bandwidth between the things that we have to do and the things that we want to do. And I had found all this new bandwidth and I was like, oh my God, what do I do with all this new energy? So I set it up and I was playing with it. I made a smoothie out of whatever I could find in the fridge. I just grabbed some vegetables and some liquid and I just threw it in the blender and I called it a food smoothie. And it was it was just a, it was just to see, you know, what would this look like? I imagine that the experimentation of these early videos was what made this whole time so exciting and enjoyable for Andrew. All the pressure was off. There was no expectations, no director telling him that he had to start over. This was all him. But it wasn't only about his project. Yeah, he could take ownership of his creation, and that felt good, really good. But he was also able to relish his emergence from depression. He was responsible for that, too. And knowing that felt even better. So equipped with a camera and an internet connection and a newfound zeal for life, Andrew set off to make his mark. I was playing around with it and, uh, you know, this is a story I've told a million times. There's just that I Parks and Rec was on in the background because I watch TV shows the way most people listen to music. It's just repeatedly and, and in the background all the time. And it was the burger cook-off episode between Ron and Chris. And Chris described his purposefully foodie bullshit buzzword burger. I humbly place before you my East Meets West patented Traeger turkey burger, an Asian fusion burger made with Willow Farms organic turkey, a toasted Taleggio cheese crisp. I was like, what would that actually taste like? And I was like, huh, maybe this is an opportunity for me to just make something. I'm just going to make something. I don't know what it is. It's just something that evolved as I was playing with it. Then I, I made something 
you know, there are issues in it. The color's not quite right. The, it's not 4K. It's 1080. You know, it's, I, I get excited and, I, and I, I'm impulsive, so I just threw it up online. Posted it in the food subreddit, and I posted it in the cooking subreddit, and the filmmaking subreddit, and the Parks and Rec subreddit. Posted it around, and the folks that were still subscribed to me are like, oh, this guy I subscribed to six years ago just <laughs> uploaded a video for the first time. And uh, it got, I think it got like 10, 20,000 views. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, it got some eyeballs on it. And all the comments were either praise or suggestions. So I was like, okay, people like this, and they want to see more. Never planned to make more than one episode. It was a new creative outlet that I had found. I didn't know what I was going to make next. And I didn't know if I was going to make another episode about food from pop culture or anything like that. Then I had this manic kind of energy. Whenever I was left alone, left to my own devices, and I could stay up until four in the morning and watch whatever I want, do whatever I want, smoke all the pot I want, I would get I would get a little crazy. And when my wife went out of town, I was like, I'm going to make Timpano, the hardest thing I've ever seen <laughs> in my life on film except for like the big, I've seen a lot more now. And describe what that is. Timpano is, it's a way overblown lasagna, really. It's this big showy dish that I don't know what its origin is or it's what its provenance is in Italian cuisine, but it's from the movie Big Night. It's called Timpano because it's Italian for timpani uh, drum because it looks like a big old fucking drum. It kind of also looks like a big old wheel of cheese. And if you cut into it, it looks like if you had a cake, but instead of cake inside, it's like layers of cheesy goodness. I've been talking about this for five years. I don't know how you're better at describing it than me, but thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's layers of pasta and meatballs, boiled eggs for some reason, cheese, uh, sausage, and it's all encased in a pasta dough crust that gets baked and cut into mammoth slices. And it took me 14 hours uh, between shooting it and editing it. it. Took another few days and I stayed up all night. I knew I had my spark back because I did something I hadn't done since college, which was as soon as I was done filming, I ripped the memory card out of the camera and ran to my computer and started editing. I hadn't done that in years and it was so exciting. And there it was. Just like that, Andrew was excited about something again. Was it the fact that he successfully made a timpano bursting with meaty, saucy, steamy goodness? Or was it that he was finally doing something that for so long he'd been missing? He was creating. Honestly, it was probably a bit of both, but I think it's safe to say that it was the latter that reignited his spark. Back when Andrew was working on the documentary project, the abuses he faced completely unraveled him stamped out whatever spark had previously been there. But while the depression he experienced in the wake of that project was miserable, it wasn't for nothing. His mind was now in a prime condition to create, and it seemed like things were finally looking up, or at least so he thought. I was getting so much fulfillment from making this thing. How were the other parts of your life? Well, that's the, that's the thing. I was getting so much fulfillment from making this thing, and I couldn't figure out why I was still so catastrophically unhappy. A, a sort of chain of events took place that helps me kind of, I took, I ate mushrooms and I went to my therapist on mushrooms. Why, why did you think that was a good idea? I had done psychedelics a couple times at this point in my life. And, uh, I had had very therapeutic experiences. I, uh, psychedelics of any kind can be extremely therapeutic drugs. 
I had read an article about how it was being used to treat PTSD that um, you could discuss painful memories and experiences and that it could permanently change the chemical pathways in your brain that determine how you interpret those experiences and those feelings. A metaphor that I loved, it's like your brain is hardened plastic and psychedelics turn up the heat a little bit and make it a little bit more malleable so you can shape your brain into a, a better structure for just living. I love that. That makes me want to do it more now. <laughs> <laughs> and then I told him, hey, doc, I'm tripping face right now. You know what to do because he he also does a ketamine clinic so he knows about alternative you know therapies so he asked me some pointed questions and i had such a insane experience that that week she was out of town again and when she came home i had been in bed again for two days because i was so depressed with the weight of the realization that i wasn't in love and that i couldn't stay married to her i couldn't do it all that happened was that I had re I had realized that I was trying to be somebody else for her, and I had realized that I didn't want to do that anymore, <laughs> that I wanted to find out who I was, and I couldn't wait even another minute tending otherwise, which is why it was all just so sudden, and I feel terrible that I thrust that upon her. It had to happen for my happiness and, and by extension for her. Who wants to be in a relationship with somebody that's miserable? And not because of you, but just because you're a mismatch and you're not the right people for each other. He wasn't happy, and he was eager to understand why. That's where the shrooms came in. And if you listen to our last series on psychedelics, you probably have a good idea of why things happened the way they did for Andrew. Psilocybin enables you to dive into areas of your brain that previously felt locked. And with the help of a therapist and guided questions, maybe you can find some clarity there. And yeah, it was super painful, but clarity is what Andrew found. And when it came to big changes, this was only the beginning. So stepping out of that, what next? Because now you have a new environment, a new energy, and the same, like you've discovered a passion. So where does it go from there? As soon as I moved out of our Queens apartment that I had shared with my ex-wife, I moved to Harlem and uh, I bought the booze block, the giant um, uh, butcher block table that is still in my studio right now. It's still what I make the show on. I picked that up on Amazon for 300 bucks. I was so wildly in debt. I was paying for divorce lawyers and all this shit. But I was like, I need to pursue this passion, even if it's just, you know, once a month. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to try to make it an episode, not on schedule, but just whenever I can, just once a month. And then the Friends episode came out, the Moistmaker episode. And that was the first windfall for the channel. It got like 600,000 views. You see, my, my sister makes these amazing turkey sandwiches. Her secret is she puts a, an extra slice of gravy-soaked bread in the middle. I call it the Moistmaker. <laughs> It was published on Food and Wine. It was published on Entertainment Weekly. It was it was the number one uh, video uh, on, in Reddit, uh, the video subreddit. It was the first big moment for the channel, and uh, that's when I realized, okay, I have something here. I need to start making this once a week. When watching the Moistmaker Sandwich episode, it's not hard to see why the video and Andrew became an instant hit. 
His voiceover is like a stream of consciousness. It feels like you're in his head. For sandwich day, we want to prep our 20-pound bird by butterflying it. This means cutting out the spine and flattening, which is a long, arduous process if you don't have the right scissors. So go out and get some poultry shears because this is really super hard unless you have the right tools. Hang on. The difference between this kind of cooking tutorial and others is that this one feels, well, I don't know, more, more personable relatable. It's not some sterile kitchen set, and it doesn't feel like you need to be Rachel Ray to make your food taste halfway decent. There's a certain authenticity that just kind of emanates from his voice. It's like he's saying, I don't care if you like this or not, I'm doing it anyway. It's like when you break up or you cut off all your hair or just take a job that's out of state. You wind up doing what you want to do because at this point, it's only up to you. So maybe it was his newfound liberation, or maybe it was just a way to cope. But either way, Andrew had tapped into something big, and things would only get bigger from here. My first brand deal uh, was for a three-episode arc, and it was like, it pretty much knocked out my entire debt in one fell swoop, which was awesome, obviously. And I was making enough money where I could quit my job and do it full time. Then I was doing it full time for about a year uh, before I moved out of my apartment and got my own place. I moved to Soho, one of the more expensive neighborhoods, uh, and my rent climbed to a teeth curling uh, $11,000 a month. For <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was an absurd amount of money to spend. But you also need it for the production too, right? Because are you filming stuff from that apartment? Something like ninety percent of the square footage in that apartment was dedicated to content creation. Living room, half of it was our offices. You know, I, I put our desks in there. The entire kitchen uh, was made into a studio. And uh, my bedroom was my bedroom. That was about the only part of it that was not content oriented. So when I moved there, uh, the day that I moved in was also Sawyer's first day of working with me. Uh, he's my oldest friend. Uh, he, he is my attorney, my business partner, my confidant, my creative partner. He's, he, he wears many hats. And, uh, you know, everybody warned me about working with my friends. And there was probably a 50-50 shot that it could have gone a tits up, but it didn't because we work together very, very well. We have a lot of respect for each other. And uh, I might be miserly in that I'm trying to hire as few people as possible so I get to keep money. But for the people that I do hire, I try to be as generous and as fair as possible uh, because that's what people have done for me. That's what John and Diana did for me at my last job. So what, what are you optimizing for now? Are you post money? I've been able to squirrel away more money than I ever thought that I would have in my life, which I'm very happy about. You're not a you're not a Jeff Bezos dragon hoarding his gold. Not even not even at all, uh, because I'm I'm dumping it straight back into other projects. I've probably spent half the money I've made, if not much, actually much more, on uh, just making the show and making things happen, buying equipment, hiring people, uh, retrofitting the basement to my new house, to my house that I've been here for a year now. Retrofitting the basement um, into two studios costed in the neighborhood of, um, I think it was around $200,000 uh, to retrofit. Okay, okay. So Andrew's not quite post money. But then again, why would he be? He finally got his creativity back, his outlet for expression. And it was successful, hugely successful. Not too long ago, he'd been submerged in depression's black, gooey liquid. Life felt void of purpose or meaning. And I think for someone who's spent part of their life in that kind of depression, Anything that comes after it feels like it's entirely yours to claim. 
Because regardless of all that suffering, he made it out. And that in itself is kind of amazing. Of course, most people's success doesn't take the shape of a burgeoning YouTube channel in an $11,000 a month Soho apartment, but Andrew's did. And now with the capability to fund other projects, he's able to dream up ideas unlike anything you've ever heard before. What kinds of projects are you looking to take on? Because now you have all these resources. You have all this fame and this really cool niche. What are you most excited about pursuing story-wise and content-wise and business-wise? I'm opening the Bed and Babish. I have bought a two-acre parcel of land overlooking the Delaware River in uh, upstate New York, about two hours north of New York City. And I'm breaking ground in the next five weeks or so. It's it's a very modern but cozy sort of structure. It's inspired by Japanese architecture, so it's very boxy, very angular. Now, the thing, the, the thing that I'm most excited about, there's a tribute to my mother built into this Airbnb that is going to be something that people are going to fucking love, which is that uh, back when I was uh, maybe nine or ten, right before she passed away, she did this really, really involved treasure hunt where she, you know, stained paper with coffee and singed the edges and did beautiful script on it. And it was real to me. It was absolutely real to me. And there was there was all these beautiful clues and, and they were hidden all throughout town. And I want to give that experience to guests. So there's going to be a built in escape room style scavenger hunt on the property that the prize at the end is we're designing a hidden door in a bookshelf and the bookcase opens up. And behind it, you will see a staircase. You go down the staircase and it will lead you into a uh, secret movie theater with projectors, surround sound, popcorn machine, big pile of candy, um, maybe some rec room stuff like a like air hockey table or something. Just like, you know, something like, holy shit, this was here <laughs> the whole time kind of vibe. And the hope there is that I want to open five more of these across the country. Each one of them, I want them to be, yeah, I want them to be a reflection of their community. So like I'm having local artisans and local furniture stores and stuff curate and, and decorate this whole place. It's also going to be geared towards foodies. So we're going to have a, an a la carte option to fill the uh, refrigerator with all the groceries you need to make three meals a day for four people or whatever, uh, customizable and, you know, an iPad preloaded with exclusive episodes that you, so you can cook along, stuff like that. It's so cool. <laughs> it's so cool. When did you get this idea? Uh, back in January when Jess and I went to stay in a cabin for her 30th birthday and it was just magic. And I was like, we need to get in on this. I love that. I love that it's just like I think of an idea and then I do it. It seems like a, a pretty consistent thread in your story. That, that is that is the best part about having these resources. Like you said, you know, uh, what are you going to do with these resources and fame and whatever? Cool shit. <laughs> the, the cool shit, the stuff that keeps me up at night, because this this cabin thing, I catch myself on my computer browsing and brainstorming and having ideas until three in the morning. And I'm like, Jesus, I need to go to sleep. That's another thing that stands out to me about Andrew. The guy is just straight up excited about everything. The way he talks about local artisans, the treasure hunt, the way he's going to fit his mom's influence into his plans, there's heart in it. And it's as though he's harnessing the same concept that his dad explained to him while in Haiti. He's harnessing human interaction. But not in times of immense suffering or anguish like the priests with rum dripping down their faces, cigar smoke curling through the air. Here, with ideas like Ben Babish, Andrew seeks to bring out the human connection that occurs in times of joy, creativity, and community. And if you've been wondering, 
No, he's not looking back. So if you were to go back and give advice to the depressed or the more depressed Andrew, that didn't really know, you know, what direction that they that you wanted to go in and what would be helpful to that person uh, is at the beginning of their journey. I'll tell you exactly what I would do. I would smash that time machine with a hammer. Seriously, because my mistakes, my depression, my hurt, my good times and bad, they are the things that led me to this point, and I would not change a fucking thing. Mistakes can either be things that haunt you or they can be learning experiences. If you make a souffle and it collapses and you decide to give up cooking forever, then that souffle will haunt you for the rest of your days. But if you look up my souffle and souffle collapsed. What do I do? Oh, I need to get my egg whites a little stiffer. Uh, I need to, you know, um, take it out at a certain time, whatever, try again. And you, and you do a little better Then that mistake just became a formative experience. And likewise with pain and suffering and unhappiness. And these are all things that can potentially breed exciting, fulfilling new things because with my marriage and everything and my apartment, I just had to throw a match behind me and watch and walk away from the explosion in slow motion. Nothing's ever going to make you drastically change your life than persistent unhappiness so long as you can recognize it and use it. So I would never go back and talk to my older self because I want to end up exactly where I am right now. And the only way that I do that is by walking through the fire. And sometimes you got to do that. Sometimes you have to figure it out. And that's how you get guided to your next steps. When watching the episode where Andrew makes the infamous timpano, I find myself scrolling through the comments. There are some that reflect on how far he's come others basking in the nostalgia of his early days. And then there's one that really stood out to me. It wrote, Andrew, I come to this video every once in a while when I'm really sad. I hope you know you're giving some of us a lot to keep going. Don't stop what you're doing, man. As I'm reading this, all I can think about is it wasn't long ago where Andrew was in the same space, same mental framework. And now here he is tossing around banter as he painted me a portrait of the life he's created. Listening to him, he really just seemed happy. And what I gathered from the comments is that that energy is contagious. So I scrolled through them. I began to reflect on what it is exactly about Andrew's channel that makes it so fulfilling. And I think I finally got it. His show is about food, yeah. But it's not food in isolation. It's the human element of food, of cooking. The part where you're spilling stuff, dropping pans, taking premature bites. It's about being able to laugh when something turns out terribly or mutter that quiet, hell yes, when you've created something great. It's the human interaction with food because that, like his dad taught him, is something worth capturing. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, Aaron Devereaux, Nicholas Guzman, Ashley Jimenez, Tomas Renteria, Nathan Tower, Callum Turnbull, Lauren Yamada, and Maura Lynch. Our outreach and research lead is Ankita Nambiar, with support from Miriam Arden, Sarah Hobson, Lisa Le, Kenny Ong, Melody Sopani, 
Therese Tan, and Marie Vaughn. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Natalie Agnew, Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Harrison Duffy, Alexandra Huntalis Adams, Kylie McCreary, Beatrice Phillips, and Viruna Seminario. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Anna Rivelli, and Allison Wong. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence with support from Melanie Mack and Linda Tapia. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.